Well, today's text is in Matthew. Our focus is going to be in Matthew 26, verses uh, 16 to 13. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew 26. And our focus will be, as I said, on verse 6 6 to 13. The message I've titled, Worship Prepared for Jesus' Death. Worship that prepared for Jesus' death. But we're going to read all the way again through verse 1 to 16 together to prepare us to receive today's message together. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 to 16. These are the words of the living God. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people." Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when he saw, the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the words of Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. Now, there's a a variety of ways in which we can... There's the same message, but... a couple of angles that this text can be approached in regards to how I preach it. and uh, The one I just couldn't shake off as I was preparing this week, um, just focused on and really centered it on the, the lavish nature of this woman's worship of Christ, her adoration of Christ. Essentially, the worthiness of Christ to receive this really this almost scandalous uh, offering in the eyes of those around her. And in some, I don't want to compare it to this woman, but in some ways it reminded me also, and it just made me reflect on the past few years and some of the experiences we've had. Uh, it made me re- recall um, when I was put on trial to some degree. At that, our last congregational meeting at Van Cleek Hill Baptist Church. And I was asked, I can't, there was a lot that was asked and said, but there, I was, remember I was asked about a question, something along the lines of who would pay the fines 
for our worship gatherings, right? Who, who's going to, because uh, I was saying, essentially for those of you who are also coming into this, I was just saying it's time, the Lord is calling us to gather for worship. And, um, and I was trying, I was going about it in a way that was inviting all, but not forcing it upon all. Um, and so I wanted to be clear though about my intentions. And so the, this meeting happened and, and that question came up, who would pay the fines for our worship gatherings? And, and my, my answer was roughly, I don't remember word for word. Again, this, this was a virtual meeting. Uh, it was on Zoom because we couldn't do that in person. And Christ, my answer was something along the lines of Christ has already paid whatever fine uh, that could be required of me. Right. Um, in other words, we don't. It, yes, there's a side in which Christ says to count the cost, but what, what he meant by there is, be, are you ready, right, to pay whatever cost? Um, and, and well, and, and there's different applications there. But when it comes down to essentially, I, that question made me often brings me back to this question of, um, is he worthy of the cost? Like not not who's going to pay the cost? How much? How much could this possibly cost you? It's uh, is Christ worthy of whatever cost that could, uh, could ever be exacted from us or required of us temporarily in this life that he's given us? There's no fine too great. There's no price too high. No threat too costly that could take away from the worthiness of Christ to receive the worship that is due him from the gathered people of God whom he has purchased as his own possession by his, the precious blood of Christ. And I think this woman, even though this isn't applied to that specifically, we see, we get a glimpse into just the precious, um, the, the worthiness and infinite worth of Christ to receive all our worship, all our devotion, all our love. And in these final three chapters, beginning in chapter 26, I said last week, it's, it's narrowing in on, really it's preparing us for the cross right now. Uh, there's preparation from a variety of perspectives. And last week we compared Christ's sovereign preparation before the foundation of the world. And that was really being contrasted with the fragile plotting of men against the Lord's anointed. And then today's text contrasts with the hostility of those religious and civil aristocrats and commends here the lavish love and worship of Jesus expressed by this miscellaneous woman in a really not appealing home. And we're going to dig into that here. And the overarching focus of the text, again, is upon the worthiness of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was about to be slain, and who was worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, as they declared in Revelation chapter 5. He is worthy, and he is worthy of self-abandoned, unrestrained, extravagant worship. He is worthy of worship that might get us in trouble from our brothers and sisters in Christ from time to time. So as we walk through our text, we're going to consider the place of worship, the lavished worship offering itself, the act of worship. We're going to see the critical bystanders of the worship, and then we're going to see Jesus' acceptance and vindication of the worshiper. So we begin with the place of worship, the setting that we're given here is in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house 
of Simon the leper. So Mark chapter 14 and John 12. Mark 14 and John 12 both describe the same event that occurs here, I believe. So there's some debate on it, but it, it, when you, I think when you compare them, it, it, it's, uh, it's fitting. Uh, and they describe the anointing of Jesus Christ by Mary at Bethany. Uh, Luke chapter 7 also describes an anointing, but I believe that that one is with um, the woman who's a sinner um, and, and wipes his feet with his tears. But I believe that is different because it says it's in Galilee, which is 100 kilometers north of here. So, so we have Mark 14 and John 12, where we, we, we can look to for a bit of other uh, surrounding details. And based on the timeline provided in John, this is evidently presented by Matthew as a flashback in time. So in Matthew verses 1 to 5, we saw that that occurred two days before the Passover, which was on the Tuesday. I realized last week I said I was saying Wednesday. Um, I don't know if that was the, a commentary I got that from or just my bad math. But it makes, it, I believe it was on Tuesday, is where we were just last week. Um, but there is no indication of time given to us now in verse 6. Matthew's not always, he's not stuck to chronological times, but sometimes he, he clearly is when he says, and immediately after this, this happened, right? And he'll, he'll sp- specify, but other times he'll just totally go off somewhere else. He takes the liberty to do that. Um, and I, I believe this lines up, because in, so in verse 6, there is no indicator that we're still back on Tuesday. And in verse 6, we, we're kind of free to go with John chapter 12. John 12, verse 1 says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. So, so this puts us on the Saturday before his crucifixion. So we're ha- this is a bit of a, a flashback uh, that, that Matthew is now giving to, uh, to us in light of this uh, of Jesus declaring his death. The, the, the civil and religious leaders are plotting to kill him. And now Matthew wants to take us back to this beautiful picture that is given in contrast to what we just saw in those verses. We're in Bethany, a few kilometers east of Jerusalem. Uh, remember, pilgrims would be pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover during this time, right? So it's estimated about 2 million people and, and they wouldn't have enough lodging uh, in the city of Jerusalem uh, at that time to, to have everyone. And so Bethlehem being a few kilometers on, on the outside of town would be a place, a, a very hot spot for people to be finding lodging to stay and, and to be able to walk into Jerusalem to, for their sacrifice and feast and to, to leave and have a place to stay at night. And, and so this is, this is what's going on here. Um, but note more specifically that Matthew locates this in the house of Simon the leper. Now, there's guesses at who this is. Some people think that this is maybe the, the one leper of the ten that came back to give thanks to Jesus. There's no way to know uh, who this, this leper is. But we do know that at one point in time, he was a leper. That's, that's clear. And Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper, which, uh, as we'll see, I believe served as a fitting location for Jesus to receive this act of worship. Uh, which I believe is contrast with the temple where Jesus was ridiculed and, and really pushed out of uh, in earlier chapters. Uh, leprosy, of course, was a general term uh, given to a variety of bacterial skin diseases as well as the spread of mold in homes. Uh, and it was nasty, right? You, you didn't, you just didn't, that was, it was, it stigmatized, stigmatized people for, in some 
to some degree, for good reason. Um, that, that it was severely contagious. And, and that nobody, no one with leprosy would wish it upon their worst enemy. Um, I didn't know how much to go into this, but it's kind of interesting to think through. Um, but basically, Levit- Leviticus 13 and 14 tells us that people who had leprosy had to be quarantined. And they had to be exiled from society because of that. They, they didn't want to spread the disease uh, elsewhere. And I, ironically, I find, it, I find it ironic. Today, the, the, the world interprets the Old Testament laws right, as being barbaric and harsh. While the truth is, is that God's quarantine laws in the Old Testament are a demonstration of his love and his protection uh, for his people. And we see that God's quarantine demanded that people who are sick with infectious diseases be quarantined. And many people, they look at that and they say, look how, see how harsh God was, strict he was. But ironically, now given our recent history, we can see how much more gracious and, and sensible God's quarantine laws are than our own public health quarantine laws forced upon the entire population regardless of your condition. We can see in hindsight how much more humane and loving God's law is as it pertains to preventing the spread of deadly and contagious diseases. In this case, and elsewhere, the law is preventing the spread of sin and violence and, and all hell breaking loose in society. It's, it's his love for his people and protecting them which, which motivates these laws. And now we can assume that Simon was healed by this point. In fact, I think you're, we're, it's pretty safe to assume that Jesus was the one that healed him. Jesus healed lepers. We've seen this already in Matthew. The law could only diagnose the leprosy and tell you how they were to deal with it and be isolated from society in order to pre- prevent it from getting worse. But Jesus not only diagnoses the leprosy, we see Jesus can heal the leprosy. He can do what the law cannot do. The law diagnoses sin in the same way, but it has no power to heal sin, does it? Whereas Jesus has the power to heal and forgive sin. Jesus does what the law cannot do. The law names it, it exposes it, but Christ uh, must redeem it. And in these Old Testament quarantine laws, of course, they did become exaggerated by the scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament. Um, those who were power hungry, much like, again, like we see happening today, where there, you have common sense laws and then it just gets crazier and crazier. In the Talmud, they, they, would for, they forbade Jews from coming within six feet of a leper or uh, they would give you ten feet as long as the wind was blowing uh, away, you know, the other direction. Uh, if a leper saw someone approaching him, he would have to wave his arms in the air saying, unclean, unclean, right? stay away from me. Um, one ancient rabbi said, when, he, when, he, when I see lepers, he said, I throw stones at them lest they come near. And so you can see how kind of going, taking a step beyond the laws and God's purpose of protection and, and, pre- and prevention of spreading of this disease, it, 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 uh, many of these people seized upon it as an opportunity um, to, to put others down and to exalt themselves and to, to manipulate the situation. And here Jesus is in the house of a leopard. 
And uh, here, Jesus had likely, again, he likely healed this man. And yet the stigma of being a leper is still on him. He'd still call, it's still house, the house of Simon the leper, regardless of whether he has leprosy now or not. That, that stuck with him. It's the kind of name given to someone's home that would be meant to keep, you know, keep you out, to, to give caution to those who maybe they don't, maybe you don't know this about him, but uh, he had this disease and you probably don't want to go there. It's the kind of, play, it's the kind of name uh, when you're invited to the party uh, that you're, you're going to think twice about before, before going to that home. Um, kind of, again, it's like when we found out, oh, this person that you were going to go, if you were legally, you know, having dinner, at, illegally having dinner at someone's house during the COVID days, and then you found out that they were hanging out with somebody that got COVID, and now all of a sudden it's like there's a stigma with that house, and you don't know if you should go there, if you shouldn't go there, and it's, there's similar ideas here going on. It's an undesirable place to be. It's a questionable place to be, let's say that. And here Jesus is, is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And again, as I said, I don't want to get too, much, too far down the road here, but I can't help but wonder, and I want you to consider with me, that by putting this story here, again, because Matthew, he's playing with the timeline a bit, so why is he doing that? I, I, don't know, I can't say for sure, but I can't help but wonder that by putting it here, we are, he's making a comparison between this place, the place of Simon the leper, and the place of worship in the temple that was previously the focus of chapters 21 to 24. Whereas it was normally the leper and his home which was, was to be destroyed in the Old Testament, it would soon be Jerusalem and the temple that's going to be destroyed. And Jesus is where? In light of this, this presentation, he's in the leper's home. And in fact, Jesus has been run out of the temple by the religious leaders who, instead of bowing down and wor- to him and worshiping him, are plotting to kill him and remove him from their presence altogether. But here in Matthew 26, we find Jesus being welcomed and worshiped in the house of Simon the leper. So the place of this lavished offering of worship is in Simon, the, le- the house of the leper. Let's move on now to the actual act itself in verse 7. So he's in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And a woman came up to him and in, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So we find that in John chapter 12 verse 3, this woman was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha. And she came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Mark 14, 5 suggests, he says, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Uh, 300 denarii, which is estimated to be about a year's wages in those days. Maybe, some people suggest even more than that. But that's what we can go with the least amount, a year's wages. And part of the nature that made these ointments so costly was the fact that they could only be used and enjoyed once, right? Once you broke that, that alabaster glass, I, I don't know all the specifics of what it was made of, but once you open it and, and broke it open, it, like that was, it was your opportunity. That was the moment to enjoy this, this gift, and then it was, it was done. 
Uh, they weren't like precious metals, right? Like gold that could be passed on uh, or, or, and, or maybe worn again and again. But once this flask was opened and, and it was, its only enjoyment and effect was in that moment and for the remainder of that day. And, and I, again, I, it just makes me think uh, today, I don't know what, what would be more similar. Um, I couldn't help but think, I don't know if I'm the only guy who thinks this way. But um, this would be why men would rather buy their spouse's jewelry than flowers. Um, jewelry sticks around. Flowers, you know, it kind of just comes and goes. Um, and Rosie's here and she's thinking, he doesn't even buy me jewelry. Um, <laughs> but maybe, a, maybe a, a better comparison would be uh, a lavished feast, Right? Uh, the kind of thing that you enjoy in the moment. It's, it's, it's glorious, it's fun, beautiful, whatever thing. Uh, but it, and, and you know it's passing. It, it, it's, it's, and so it's lavished. Uh, and uh, it's not something to, to indulge in often. I use the word lavish to describe this act of worship. And that's, that's, I bring that to this. Um, he says very expensive in, in describing the oil. But I use the word lavish to describe it because... I believe it describes the kind of the bigger picture of what is taking place from the viewpoint of everyone, even those the disciples that are they're not they don't like what's going on. They would they would see this as lavish. It's, uh, the the Mary, um, the, the Webster Dictionary defines lavish as expanding, expending, or bestowing profusely, uh, and profusely there implies pouring forth without restraint. Uh, like it's just throwing yourself into. Uh, this gift. And verse 7 says, She took this very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Um, Matthew Henry explains, he says, This among us, at that time and with us, would be a strange sort of compliment have, to have your head anointed. But it was then accounted the highest piece of respect. For the smell was very grateful, and because remember, and remember, bathing in those days was not a, a daily occurrence, um, let alone other uh, other aspects. And the ointment itself was refreshing to the head. Uh, if you, just as you think of, um, as David says of the Lord in Psalm twenty-three, verse five, right? He says, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil." My cup overflows. And right there in this, this moment, she pours this on Jesus' head. And everybody is looking at Jesus as the beautiful, this, this aroma is, is emanating from him. And I, 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 don't, I can only guess, but I think that they're probably just think, like, thinking, what just happened? Like, did she just do what I think I saw that she just did? Am I smelling the smell that I'm smelling here? Uh, from what she just did. Again, uh, a year's worth uh, of salary. Um, these, and these weren't rich people, uh, these disciples. When you think, and so um, it, it's been poured upon him. They're going to enjoy it for this moment, and it, that's it. It's done. This act of worship is so pure, it's so selfless, it's so Christ. Exalting. 
Jesus said earlier in Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And she's pouring out this incredible treasure upon Jesus' head. And the whole, this whole thing, it's about, I, I just, it, it exudes the love of her love of Christ. And it's reflective to me of the childlike faith that Jesus refers to earlier, which, really, which considers no cost to be too great for, for Christ and his service. It's extravagant. It's unsparing worship. Unreserved worship. Because of who he is and what he, what he means to her. I hope that you're given, that you've given him all your love and your affection here today. Your obedience to Jesus and your worship of Jesus and your delight in Jesus should all flow of a heart that is, is, is filled with your love towards him and can be demonstrated um, by your action, by your service. Again, worship and service go hand in hand. Um, in, in the Bible, to give worship is to give worth. Ship. And that's how the English word breaks is, is given to us. It's worship. It's acknowledging his worth um, as a noun. Has your service, has your worship, has your obedience become a grueling burden to you? Especially in the mundane daily tasks which the, and duties which the Lord has given you to serve him. Have you lost sight of the worth and glory of Christ, your Lord and Savior? There is a sense in which we must operate on duty. There is a sense in which we must know what is our duty and be willing, regardless of the affection, regardless of how we feel, to step up and, and, and step into our duty. But again, our life of duty, our life of worship should always should, should ultimately, if fundamentally come from a heart that adores our Savior and our King. And while this ought to be manifest with every waking moment that you are given to serve Him, I want to remind you that our worship of Christ is so much more than our corporate worship we offer Him on the Lord's Day. Right? It's, it, goes, it goes beyond the worship we offer him today. But just to help us and as a, as a way of application, I also want to remind you that our worship of Christ is not less than the worship we offer him today. And so, so let me ask, does your preparation throughout the week to get here on Sunday, which, because by the way, it starts on Monday. You're getting ready to show up here, to be here. It begins on Monday. Does your preparation throughout the week, does it begin, is it, is it a preparation to come here and to stay here and to be present here and to fellowship and to build up the body of Christ with the entire day of rest that the Lord has given you out of the seven to be here? Does your view of the Lord's worship on the Sabbath reflect this woman's kind of unrestrained uh, Pharisaic offending act of worship 
that this woman offers to her Lord here? What about your singing? Does your singing reflect the infinite worth of Christ? Does your prayer, as you join me in prayer together as a church, does it reflect? Are you as devoted to that as you are, as you devote yourself uh, to the tasks that you have throughout your week? Or the people that you'll speak to face to face? Or the hearing of God's word here as we're, as we're here. It's a discipline. I get it. It's not, uh, it's, it's, it requires uh, paying attention and, and kind of being brought back to attention. Uh, but is Christ worthy of that? Again, if I could frame it another way, what measure, what limit could possibly be used to conclude that we've made an offering of worship today that is worthy of his name? Right? Where we could say, you know, okay, that's too much. Right? What, where is that limit? Is it an hour? An hour of our day? Is it maybe two hours of our day? I just want to, and I think you know this, but I just want you to hear again that uh, Christ is worthy of all of it. He is worthy of the entire day of rest that he has given you to worship him in the assembly of God's people. Not just your friends and your family, but the whole family of God. And he is worthy also of the other six days of work that he has given you to work and to serve your families and your neighbors in worshipful obedience to God as well. Christ is worthy of all of it, and his word and commands determine the manner and extent of the worship that he is worthy of. And this woman's lavish act of worship towards him is a testimony to his matchless worth. But as we move on to, this ne- to the next verse, we observe the critical bystanders of such lavish worship. The disciples we see here start to resemble the Pharisees. It, sometimes it bothers us, right? us who, who know better, us the spiritual ones, when we see somebody delighting in Christ more than us. And so in verse 8 he says, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And when the disciples saw it, they were, it says, indignant. Now, you might not remember the last time we heard that word, indignant, in Matthew. The last time we heard that word is when Jesus was in the temple He had driven out the money exchangers and the merchants and he was healing the blind and the lame. In Matthew 21, verse 15, it says that, but the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. the cries and the worship of the children and the wonderful things that they saw Christ doing caused them to be indignant. Do you see how quickly the disciples become like Pharisees here? And I'm not saying that to say, to suggest that you or I are any holier than the disciples themselves. This ought to give actually some hope to us that the disciples can go here and be restored as, as as they will be. 
But I believe this is recorded here for the purpose to instruct us that we can, you cannot just ride on your past faithfulness to God and your standing among his people as if that's enough to get you through to, to the intended end. It, 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 it is a constant struggle and a constant fight to protect our hearts from becoming like the heart of the Pharisee, of the hypocrite. The disciples don't erupt in praise over our Lord, understanding what this woman has done for him. They don't see it. The disciples' hearts, for some reason, have grown cold, they've grown cold and hard. And this is a warning that, again, your faithfulness at one point in the past, your faithfulness today in this moment, and maybe you're, you're hearing what I'm saying, and your heart is bursting forth in love and affection for Christ and praise to Him and adoration, that, that is no guarantee of future faithfulness. And observe their hip, hypocrisy, by the way. Look at, in, in uh, verse 8, it says that when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Why do I say that there's hypocrisy there? Um, where, was, where was their concern for the poor back in chapter 24, verse 1, as they stood in awe on the Mount of Olives looking at the building of the temple and its glory and its splendor? In Mark chapter 13, it specifically says, as, as they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. There was no sign of indignation there over the lavish spending and, uh, and putting, uh, that was put into the temple and its beauty. But they were indignant over this woman worshiping Jesus because it could have been sold and given to the poor, it said. And we know from John, by the way, that Judas was the initiator in this. Uh, John tells us that he wasn't concerned about the poor. Judas was the treasurer, and he was taking from the treasury. And so he was not concerned about the poor, he was concerned about his own profit, his own percentage he would take in giving to the poor. Um, in the guise of, of, of his charity to the poor. And, and by the way, is that not how we will justify our own sin oftentimes in our compromise to others? That, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but look at... Look at Look, look what else is happening that's good, right? And we, we'll look at the, that side but, and we'll cover what we know is sin in our own hearts. Right? It, we, 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 do, we do it this way. Don't go to worship Christ this Sunday. Why? To love your neighbor. You see? We, we couch it with this, with the, what is a command of God and seemingly very good um, to neglect another very clear command of God. And at this particular scene, we know that Judas was the one stirring up the rest of the disciples. So Matthew says it wasn't just Judas. Judas was the initiator, but the disciples are, it's disciples plural that gets the blame here. And that, and that should cause us to notice that one hypocrite, to see the damage that one hypocrite can, can have upon a larger group of, of Christians. That one hypocrite can do so much damage, so much mischief in the church, and exert so much destruction among otherwise decent men. 
And if you, I just want you to think of this, uh, of how much this might have, ought to have hurt this poor woman to have the disciples criticizing this like that. These were the leaders, right? These were the, there, there was no getting closer to Jesus than the 12 disciples. They, they, they must, she must have looked up to them and, um, and not envied them in a negative sense, but just, just wanted to be in their position, to, be, to get as close to Jesus as, as these disciples have. And so here she has the opportunity. She's, she, she's next to him, and she, so she's pouring out. She's showing her love to him. And I think this would have been so disheartening to this woman. And in my experience, and, I, I may, and maybe this is me just projecting this on here, there's nothing more hurtful for me. There has been nothing more hurtful, nothing more disorientating than when professing Christians cut you down and ridicule your motives because of your devotion and your desire to serve Christ. And if even with that being said, as I think as hurtful as that is, don't let that get in the way of your love and worship for Christ. Don't let that hinder you and your confidence and your joy in the Lord that he's given you. Remember this woman. Remember if it happened to her among the apostles themselves, that it could and ultimately probably will happen to you as well. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon commented here, he said, when you do the best you can do from the purest motives and the Lord accepts your service, do not expect that your brethren will approve all your actions. If you do, you will be greatly disappointed. He must have known something about that himself. Even the best of men will strike out and fall prey to the enemy's schemes. And this is why we cannot rely on the interpretations and authority of men when it comes to our acts of worship and how we worship the Lord. And how we, we, we devote our service to Him and carry it out for Him. But it must ultimately be, our, our weight must be upon the Lord and to search the interpretation which comes directly from Him and from His Word. And that's where we close here and what we turn to in these last verses. We've seen the place of worship. We've seen the lavish worship of this woman. We've seen the disciples' criticism of the worship. And now we're going to conclude with Christ's acceptance and vindication of the worship. Verse 10, it says, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The truth and the proper judgment of what has taken place does not come from these leading men who surrounded the women from the disciples. Rather, they're judged by Christ here. And he, Jesus, has the final judgment on the matter. And if there is one thing which ought to be more important to us and to you 
than the judgment of the people around you. It ought to be the judgment and acceptance of our worship from the Lord Jesus himself. What does he have to say about what you're bringing him? What does his word have to tell, tell us about the worship that you bring to him? And this is, again, I, I think this is ultimately what comes down to the gravest error that the church made over the COVID, the whole COVID era, era. There's many mistakes that we could point out and things that we could draw on and learn from. But I think this, is, this highlights and this gets to the greatest error was that we stopped the public worship of Jesus for the sake of who? When, when it was really, and what, what did we often say? For man. For our neighbor. And our repentance and our choosing to come together for worship was never about asserting our own rights as so many sought to slander us with. And there is a case to be made for that, by the way. (laughs) But that was not, again, the driving, the underlying force uh, behind what, what, what we were led to do. I know that in writing, that, that I know it's in writing that I was, I very clearly said that our Lord's call to gather for worship was never about our rights, my rights to worship the way that I, that I would like. It was and it does have everything to do with the right of Christ over every detail of his worship and over every detail of your lives. And so Jesus not only communicates his acceptance of her offering, right? What, what he has to say about this offering. But he also provides his interpretation of what she has done for us. He says, for you will always have the poor with you, but you, have, you will not always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. It was customary to, to embalm people for burials, to anoint their bodies back then as a sign of respect for the body, and whether she knew it or not, there is, she would have, she, she should, certainly could have known. Um, again, this wasn't the, the only time where Christ said this to his disciples. Now, she didn't, she wasn't in on hearing when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, but it's, we can certainly see how that word of that got out somehow or rumor of it. But whether or not she knows that that's what she's doing. Jesus is telling us this is what she's doing, whether she knows it or not. She is preparing for his burial because he won't always be with them. We know in, in Matthew 28 later, we know in spirit that he would, his, he, would spirit, he would send forth his spirit and would come upon the church and he said, I will be with you to the end of the age. But he's talking about bodily. He's saying he's going to die and, and Later we'll find he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so she's prepared him for burial. And then he makes this prophetic declaration as well in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So as we wrap this up here, we wrap it up on this note of hope. He predicts the future 
with this note of hope and this vindication of this woman. Again, hope not only for the woman, but for the disciples who have been brought very low at this moment. In the midst of this otherwise devastating and gloomy chapter, preparing for Jesus' death, in the midst of all this, he is declaring that this woman's selfless expression of devotion towards him will be broadcast to the whole world. What in the world? If you, if you put yourself in their shoes at that time, and, and, and that statement, how, again, whether or not they could even, they really heard it because of how beyond what they could have imagined at that time. What a deeply inspiring word that Christ gives here. To know that your service for Christ, that he has conquered the world and the devil and the gates of hell will not prevail against his mission to make disciples of all nations by the power of the gospel. That is going to go to the, he says, in the whole world. And, and this story about her is going to be told as, as that goes forth. You'd, you'd have to have faith that, that this gospel would make it that far. In, in order to also believe, hey, by the way, she's going to be included uh, in, that, in, in that memory. In that gospel. And here we are, by the way. 2,000 years later, on the other side of the ocean, admiring this woman's virtue for what she did for Jesus. Like, just think about that. This is how this is written. Then this is spoken to her. Then, and we're here sitting here, and we we're the like living out the fulfillment of this promise, thousands of years after the fact. And no matter how much the world scor- the world scorns, we see here we we're, we're, we're um, we see Jesus' promise comes through. Jesus will vindicate his people's devotion to him. It might not be in the timeline we would like. But we see this is a testimony that he vindicates those who sacrifice for him. No matter how much the world scorns, no matter how much the professing church will laugh and contempt and ridicule those who are devoted to Jesus and our acts of devotion for him, he will always vindicate his worshipers and they will be vindicated before everyone. And this should encourage anyone in this room who has received scorn or hostility because of your devotion to Christ. He will surely vindicate you. Even as he has vindicated his, this dear woman in the sight of his disciples. And by the way, he would, he would also restore his disciples, right? And, and this isn't the first time this kind of stuff is going to happen with the disciples. We're going to have... Um, we're gonna, like Peter is going to be another example of that again and again here. He will vindicate his people who come humbly before him, even as he has vindicated this woman in the sight of his disciples. And, but again, this story warns us as we close. This story warns us, even as it tells us about the vindication of God's people, it warns how easy it is to become the hypocrite yourself. To become the scoffer. To become the, the mocker. Again, if you... If and I, I just tell you, tremble in fear if you think yourself beyond that. If you think yourself better than the, the disciples of Christ. 
Right? None of us are, are, are free from that danger. And it's a reminder that the crowd, the group, cannot and must not be the final source of determining what is right in, in our society, what is right in worship, and what is right in what we give to Christ. Only Christ, only Christ's acceptance, only His Word can vindicate and direct our worship. So when the rest of the church looks on in ridicule, which is which is what we see going on in this text right here. That's, that's your example. If, if you just kind of bring this scope into to what's going on, you have the disciples, you have like the early church, and you have the majority of them, they're sitting there scoffing, and this, this one woman is offering this pure, uh, you know, unadulterated worship to Christ. Um, and so we shouldn't get too discouraged or think it's that crazy when we see the same thing happening today. When we see that happening, we need to be so careful that we don't find ourselves in the seat of scoffers ourselves. And the way we do that, the way we do that is to set our gaze upon the eternal worth and glory of Christ. To get our gaze off of ourselves. To get our gaze and, and, our, and, and our cues uh, off of our friends and our family around us. As important as, as, the, as these things are, and, to, as, and set our gaze and our hope and our trust and our obedience upon Christ and his word. Because when we do that, and when we're all doing that, uh, that's, when, that's when Christ will use the body. Uh, that, that he'll use us to be a blessing to one another and to build his body up and to be encouragement and to be light and truth in this world. So he is, we have to set our eyes on the fact that Christ is worthy. Let's pray.